Good evening and welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandsbury. And welcome to 2024 and uh, the first edition of the Pompey Politics Podcast. The astute amongst you are listening live might notice that we do pre-record that bit. So it's not quite evening, even though the light is fading at just 20 past two on a Sunday afternoon. So great to be back and uh, lovely to have a couple of fantastic guests and friends of the podcast. So Simon, welcome back. New year. Yes. All, all full of aspirations or are all those... Uh, all those uh, New Year's resolutions already in tatters. Um, I've kind of learned enough by now not to bother making any because I always I always break them. But um, I guess the best resolution this year would be um, would be a change of government, right? Oh, stop it! Stop it! Oh, somebody had a somebody had a dodgy Christmas. Ah, oh, I thought he'd Sorry. wait a little bit. But anyway. Go on, introduce our guests. So we are joined uh, this afternoon. Uh, so um, yes, as, as our um, as our regular listeners will, will notice, uh, we're a slight detour from our from our normal schedule. So we're joined this afternoon uh, by the fabulous uh, two of the three fabulous councillors for Charles Dickens Ward in Portsmouth. So we're joined with Councillor Cal Corkery. Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, Councillor Yinka Adenaran. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay, welcome, welcome both. Um, so, just to remind anybody that doesn't know about Charles Dickens Ward, so um, it's um, it literally is the very, very heart of the city. It contains the Commercial Road, Buckland, uh, Portsea, Victoria Park, the historic dockyard, um, the birthplace of Charles Dickens, hence the hence the name of the ward, um, and it, it is also a place where lots of the high rise uh, student houses housing is in the city, as well as the obviously encompassing the um, the part of the entrance of the city, which is the M275 um, and the clean air zone. So we will get into all of those things um, once we're um, hearing a, a bit more from our um, from our wonderful guests. So um, should we crack straight into the questions, Ian? Let's do it. Okay, so if such a thing exists, what is a typical... Like um, day in the life of a Charles Dickens councillor, um, and if I can ask that first to Yinka. Yes, thank you so much, and uh, once again, good afternoon. I remember I first feature in your uh, on life with you shortly before I got elected in 2022, and this is my first uh, interview again with you. And the first thing would be to thank all the residents in Charles Dickens for getting me elected in 2022, for putting their trust in me, you know, to represent them, to be their voice in the community. Thank you everyone. And thank you for inviting me. It is a really, really great pleasure to be here this afternoon. Yes, yeah, thank you. Going back to the question, um, I would say it's very busy and ferried. It all depends on what I personally, it all depends on what I have on my diary for the day. And that's why I say it's fairy. Because sometimes I started with going into of like checking my emails, going for the meetings, if it's briefings, and if it's online, sometimes we have online meetings, we have face-to-face in person where we have to go to the council for the meeting then checking the emails and um, anything related to council or en- attending community events, if you, ha- if, you, if you have one, 
and it can be from one event to another or from one meeting to another. And even apart from that, being a mother of a chief executive officer of a company, it can be very, very, very busy for me. And uh, sometimes visiting our residents in case if I have to do follow up on, on, on cases, on case work at my hands. And each day, sometimes what I normally do, I try to end my day by updating what I've done on the social media or if there's any news or any information that needs to go out to the resident at the end of the day before going to bed. So it can be really, really very busy, but it depends on each day because sometimes um, second Wednesday of every month, that is when I do have my um, advice surgery. So that means the, that day is going to be different from others. So, but it can be very busy and ferried. Thank you. That, that, that's fine. Thank you very much. Um, so very, very busy and varied. Um, Cal, did you have uh, anything more to add on that one? How's, how's the day in the life of a councillor for you? I think Ying has given quite a, a comprehensive yeah. summary there. Um, so I won't go back over what's already been said. But I guess the only thing I would add is that uh, myself, Yinka, and Kirsty, the other ward councillor, we all live within the ward. Um, so for me, there's no such thing as kind of going to work as a councillor because we're almost always on duty, whether it's kind of chatting to our neighbours as we're coming and going from our properties, um, attending local community centre, going shopping, popping into the local pub. Um, all of this for me, all this kind of day-to-day -day stuff is an important part of, of being a councillor and really being rooted in the community knowing what the issues are and kind of engaging with our residents and our neighbours on a regular basis. Okay, thank you very much. So now, if I, just to uh, look at the next issue, so when you're engaging with those those residents, what, what are the key issues that people bringing, are bringing forward to you? And are they a mix of sort of national and local issues? Because I know often councillors are viewed as being able to to, to change and make everything better. So what is it that you're hearing when you're talking to the residents? So the top issue that I will speak to people about um, or that people will come to speak to me about is always housing. Um, I think that's partly because the housing crisis does particularly affect Charles Dickens Ward. Um, so something like 70% of people live within social housing, which is one of the highest rates of any council ward in the country. I think top four last time I looked it up. Um, so there's lots of people living within social housing, lots of people often um, overcrowded, have issues with repairs and maintenance, needing to reach out for help. Also lots of issues with homelessness of people who are trying to get housed. My background um, previously was working in social housing and homelessness services. So I had a bit of kind of experience and knowledge I was able to bring to the table in terms of supporting people around that. Um, so yeah, as I say, it does mean that I, I end up speaking to a lot of people about, about the housing crisis and how we can try and support people to resolve their issues. Now, obviously, we can't always do that, unfortunately. So sometimes part of it is around managing people's expectations, explaining to people how the social housing waiting list works, uh, what their options might be otherwise. But... Uh, reasonably often there are ways in which we can support people even if it's just kind of breaking down those communication barriers people may feel that they have previously reached out for help but been turned away or not got the answer they thought of they thought they should have um, so quite often we can kind of advocate for people 
by knocking on the right doors, having those conversations and ensuring that they're getting what they're entitled to and the kind of support that they need to try and address those issues. Um, outside of that, I guess, uh, again, I'll probably, I'll try not to take all the issues, Jinka. So I, maybe I'll stick with housing because that is by far and away the, the number one issue that I deal with and I speak to people on, on a daily basis. A little follow-up question on that, Kel. Obviously, you've been in a councillor now for five years and, you know, the, the cuts to local authority spending have been there. Um, but there's also been a lot of work in Portsmouth to support the homeless. Would you say sort of five years on that things are, are, are getting better? you know getting worse or do the do the problems just vary and change over time i think the service provision has changed a lot from when i was first elected and um, previous to that kind of when i was working in homes for services um, and kind of campaigning on those issues the, the big turning point around those changes was um, the pandemic so people may remember that um near the start of the pandemic when the kind of lockdowns were starting to come into effect the government suddenly realized that if they wanted to click their fingers and abolish homelessness overnight they could do it and they brought in a policy called everyone in which mandated local authorities to basically take all or offer all rough sleepers the chance the opportunity to get off the streets kind of there and then um, and in Portsmouth that looks like um, a hotel and at one point a couple of hotels being taken over by local authority and homes and services, particularly um, or specifically for the provision of accommodation to people who would otherwise be on the streets. Um, I think that wasn't always perhaps done in for the right reasons. I think there was probably a public health concern around having people out and about during a lockdown. Um, but for whatever would reasons were, the positives were that lots of rough sleepers were given accommodation. That then developed, um, so there was money made available for the next stages because quite rightly people were saying, well, look, you've, you've suddenly abolished street homelessness, more or less, brought all these people into hotels, now what? So there was money available, uh, made available for the next steps. And in Portsmouth, that enabled the local authority to buy three um, former student accommodation blocks uh, one in the city centre and two along Elm Grove, uh, which off, off the top of my head was something like 100 bed spaces. So quite a significant expansion of, mm. kind of temporary shared accommodation available for people. And that has made a big difference because that does mean, obviously there's always exceptions to the rule, but on the whole, if there is a, a rough sleeper who is willing to go into that kind of accommodation, then usually that can be facilitated within a, a reasonably short period of time. That wasn't necessarily the case prior to the pandemic. So that's been a massive step forward in terms of the provision for rough sleepers. Um, without getting too much into detail, I think there's still a bit of a hole or a missing part within that provision because it assumes that people are, are willing or able to go and live in that type of accommodation. Um, and by the nature of it, that type of accommodation can sometimes be quite chaotic because of the mm. people that live in there, the backgrounds, the lifestyles they might be leading. Um, so quite often the, the most vulnerable people perhaps might choose or say that they're unable to go into that accommodation. So I still think there's there's work to be done around ensuring that we're meeting the needs of everyone that's a rough sleeper that needs help. Um, but certainly a, a massive step forward for that particular part of the homeless community. Um, and I'll just finish on, because I could talk about this all day, but I'll try not to. I'll just finish on um, saying that something I always try to put across is that the homelessness crisis is, is kind of massive and varied. And although people will naturally, the first thing they'll think of is the rough sleeper they've seen on the street corner, etc. Um, that is just 
part of it. And I like to say that's the tip of the iceberg because it's the part that's visible, the part that you can see. But actually beneath the waterline, there's this massive expanse um, that's probably many times more than the rough seabird population of people who are hidden homeless, who are perhaps sofa surfing or in unsafe or unsuitable accommodation. And for those people, I don't think much has changed um, in the time I've been a counsellor. And in fact, I would arguably say that it's got worse. A mixed picture then, Callan, and, and your passion for the subject comes through. So if I might turn to Yinka, um, what, what are the residents of Charles Dickens highlighting to you as their, as their biggest issues? Um, thank you. Anyway, Cass just mentioned one out of many. I'm just going to add one or two more. But with the housing, we, we have like young families with, uh, of a, you know, when you have like five, five members of a family, grown up with grown up children in a like one bedroom flat is that that is one of the issue we are facing so they all want decent accommodation so about another thing is and social behavior in most cases when i'm at my uh, advice surgery a lot of uh, residents working most of their concern is to um complain about antisocial behavior and then fly tipping so this is just quite a number of things that we are dealing with uh, at Charles Dickens' world. But those are the main, main issue and social behavior, flying tipping and housing problems. So again, a little follow-up question with the antisocial behavior and the fly tipping, are you getting the support that you would want as a local councillor to, to tackle those, those kind of behaviors? Because they came up very strongly in last year's hustings in so many wards in Portsmouth. So are you getting the support that you'd be looking for? Um, not all the time, because sometimes they, we, we are limited to what we can do. If the resident comes like that, what we normally do is to get uh, in touch, because we are, the, we are their voice anyway, is to write the email to the officer at the council. But not all the time we are getting uh, a positive result. It has to be like ongoing issue. You refuse it and you refuse it and you refuse it. And there's no end to it. But to some extent, we try to do what we can to, to alleviate the problem, but not all the time we are getting the positive results, I will, I must say. Perfect. Thank you, Yinka. Simon. Okay, um, so um, stay, staying with uh, staying with Yinka to make it um, easy to rather than keep swapping backwards and forwards. So um, so mentioned, I mentioned on it in the in the introduction. So the the, the ward's got quite a proliferation of of student tower blocks. That, you know, there's the often seems to be kind of doing the rounds about the redevelopment of Commercial Road or the, the, the stuff around kind of certain parts of the, of the city centre. Do, do, you, do you feel that the the ward and, it, and its residents benefit or or suffer from um from you know um and I've been a bit playful with the language there of being a planners and a developers kind of playground. It seems to be a place where all of these things kind of happen but they're are they for the benefit or 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 not for the for the people that live there do you think um i know for any development or the development there's always always uh prone and cons mm -hmm. and with this to be honest um we don't really need student building again in the, in that um high street because it's high street 
And if you look at it, that is why most of the uh, shop owners, they are living like Botting, Dorothy Perkins, because there's nothing attractive to the tourists that we want them to visit city center. It's a, it's a it's high street and we want them to treat it. To treat. If you go to Southampton, they have a big shopping mall and all that, which we will want to see. And mostly that is what the residents are complaining about. Uh, I remember when I first came to UK, I would not go to city center in a day because they this is very attractive. But now everything is going down, and a lot of residents, if they want, they wouldn't want a student accommodation, empty houses for the students that they are not even used. And most especially now that we don't really have more international students coming in because of the uh, uh, rules and regulation that uh, conservative just uh, uh, put across now. So it's a bit difficult to have even international students coming in into the country. So why do we build a uh, student accommodation again? So we need affordable and decent housing for all the residents. And personally, that is the way I look at it. And that is what the residents are actually uh, uh, speaking about. That the, instead of them, uh, looking for that, they are not, I don't think it's, it's the right thing to do. And the, 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 the resident actually doesn't like it that way. They want to see decent and affordable accommodation instead or do the city center, make it more attractive for the tourists to come in for the, to, for the shopping. Okay, lovely, thank you. And, and, and Cal, your thoughts on that one, please. Again, probably coming from a pretty similar um, position, but I think there's a couple of points I would add. I, I think the first to mention is that this isn't just an issue of student accommodation. I think it's a particular type of student accommodation, the, the model that's being pushed in a lot of these blocks. It's luxury, high-end, kind of really expensive student accommodation. Um, but they may have an on-site gym. I've seen ones with on-site um, canteens, cinemas, join, really amazing facilities and, and probably um, quite good places to live um, if you're happy to be stuck in a, a shoebox when you're sleeping and doing most of your other stuff. Um, but I think that the point I would make there is that there's an impact also on students, that the students are almost being forced to feel that they, they need to live in this type of accommodation, at least in their first year, and pay often hundreds of pounds a week. It's really expensive. Um, and the only way in which developers are facilitated to charge such large amounts is because students will receive their maintenance loans. Um, and obviously that goes up year by year, which has put them further and further in debt their maintenance loan comes in, goes straight out again on this expensive accommodation. Um, so I think that there's a lot to be asked there around why we're using debt given by the government put onto students to pay back in the future in order to facilitate these private developers from making expensive luxury accommodation and a lot of money out of it at the same time. Now, I know there's a lot of pushback of all, well, I say often, probably always when we speak to residents about what's going on within the area. Um, every time a new block goes up, uh, people quite rightly ask those questions of why is this accommodation for students? Why isn't there something for my cousin who's homeless, my sister and her kids who are in an overcrowded flat, um, et cetera, et cetera, kind of real social and affordable housing for the people uh, who live in Portsmouth that need that type of accommodation? Now, one point 
it's always worth making is that it's not the council building the student accommodation because there often is a lot of confusion around that. People ask, well, why is the council doing this? Why aren't they building social housing instead? Um, more often than not, these are privately owned sites. They go up for um, they go up for sale. Who buys it? It's the person that can offer the most money. The person that can offer the most money is the person that's going to make the most profit out of that site. And at the moment, the way the market is 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 that um, the most profitable thing to do is to build student accommodation. That's why it's happening. Um, but I do think the council can play and probably should play a stronger role in the kind of placemaking function through planning um, and through its other powers of, of trying to control or at least influence how land is used um, and move it towards more socially useful uses away from this kind of expensive luxury accommodation that I don't think really benefits many people in the long run, apart from the shareholders of those big developers, um, and more towards what local people want and need. And obviously, that's about affordable social um, accommodation. But it's also, as Yinka said, about re-energising the high street, um, bringing kind of businesses and um, shops that people want to go and spend their money in and spend time in back to commercial roads um, so that it can try and kind of restore the reputation that it used to have as a, a really viable com uh, commercial centre. Okay, lovely. And and I, I guess that's a the, the the change in in high streets is 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 a thing that lots of other high streets are are, are struggling with. With is it what what do you think kind of works in in that regard? Because the you know gone are the days where half the city would pile into into a commercial centre on of a of a Saturday. Um, that that kind of shopping environment's changed. What 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 do you think that kind of looks like now? Well, I think clearly there's a shift away from um, the kind of large um, shopping centres like Debenhams, etc., Marks and Spencers that used to be very prominent um, in years gone by. I think where councils are succeeding in re-energising high streets, it's about facilitating um, spaces that are maybe not just about shopping. They're also about perhaps eating out, um, having a drink, kind of other kind of social activities that draw people into a space. And maybe while they're there, they might pop to the shop next door and spend a few quid as well. Um, obviously, also housing comes with that, because if you've got people living above shops, then clearly that's going to benefit the kind of footfall for those businesses. Um, I also think it's about the size of units. Um, so again, looking at where regeneration has worked, I think it's about creating kind of smaller spaces, maybe that are exempt from business rates under the current system, have much cheaper rents, and much more affordable for people who are maybe just starting out as a small business um, to get in there, kind of establish themselves and start to build up a, a customer base. Now, I think if you look at, like, I think Albert Road is a good example of this. I know, I know Albert Road benefits from being within a, a kind of much wealthier postcode. Um, but there's also the positive benefits in terms of having small individual units that people can come in and afford to take on and set up their business and become successful. So I think going forward in terms of kind of planning and development, we need to look at try and create those smaller um, retail units where people who are setting up small businesses um, from local community can maybe come in at cheap rates, maybe be exempt from business rates um, and try to establish themselves and draw people back into the area. Kim, lovely. Thank you. Ian? So 2024 looks like a big year politically. Um, we've got, obviously, we've got local elections in May. 
and all the fun and games of the hustings we look to organize and uh, according to rishi a general election in the second half of next year so Cal, as an as an independent and i think kirsty has has announced that she's going to stand down this year who's your colleague within your group of sort of independents is it a year off for you or do you uh do you see yourself being involved um in any local or national election campaigning well the prospect of a year off sounds pretty appealing if i'm honest as someone who's committed um mm. probably i was thinking about it the other day that my last nine years um i think maybe it was one year off where we didn't have elections but the other eight have kind of been spent mostly out pounding the streets, knocking on people's doors, involved in various political campaigns. Um, but I think the general election clearly is, is a significant opportunity for us to change the way in which this country is run. Um, I, I don't think, I've probably surprised many people to say that I'm particularly enamoured with the current Labour Party um, and its leadership. And in, in particular, because for me, it's not about individuals, it's about policies. Um, and the policies that are on offer, I think, uh, are falling short of what we need and what we want to see to really kind of transform the country and provide a radical change to, what, to the way in which the Conservatives have been governing. But having said that, I think it's the Labour Party is still by far and away um, the best of the two options that we do have realistically under first past the post for who is going to be running um, the country. I think the Tories have run the country into the grounds. I think clearly there is a massive appetite for change because without doing very much, the Labour Party has um, attracted as a significant poll lead. And I think that is showing that people want to change. People want the Conservatives out of government and they want a different way forward. I guess my hope is that um, once in power, and I think that will be what happens, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are at least open to having conversations and listening to the likes of the trade unions, the likes of the kind of social movement campaigns and other progressive organisations and causes within the country who do have lots of good ideas and lots of policies that are good to go for how we can really change the country for the better. I know that's not really on offer at the moment, but I at least think one positive I will say is that I will think they will be more open to listening and having a conversation around those issues than the Conservatives have been for the past 13 years. So uh, playing it coy there as to whether you'll be laying, lacing up your campaigning trainers later in the year. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So Yinka, obviously, <laughs> as, a, as a member of the Labour Party, do you, do you see yourself having a, a busy year of campaigning? Yeah, of, of course. I, I see myself playing an active and supportive role in both campaigns. So I work hard to promote the... Um, I will, I will work hard to promote the um, the achievements and policies of my party and colleagues. And most especially of uh, um, Steve Gumaga, MP, our MP, to and possibly to win the seat at the North. Because as Carl said, all the citizens are fed up, they are tired, they want changes, and it's only labor that can do it. It's only labor that we have been waiting for. Things are just going down every time, each day. So definitely people are already fed up and then we need change. And this is the time to do that. So I'm going to be very, very busy, you know, um, cooperating and coordinating with the other candidates and campaigners in the world and in, in constituency as a whole, leafletting, door knocking, 
uh, um, all sorts of things to make sure labor get into the power. Thank you. No worries, Inka. And and I guess my question is that um, you know, as as an activist and campaigner, and I know part of the answer would be the general election can't come soon enough. Would you have preferred both elections to have been going ahead in May, or uh, or, or does it? Do you think it suits Labour better to have two two different elections? Um, to be honest, we want it as soon as possible. Even if before, even if it is what we have been waiting for, and we already out every day, every time to to come fast, you know, engaging our residents and all that. So either in May or anytime, we just want it as soon as as possible. And can Thank I just you, jump Inca. in on that one? Of course you can, Cal. I think that's an interesting question, and and various um, conversations that I've had over the past month or so that won't be disclosed with who but I think the feeling on the council is that should the general election coincide with the local elections that will have a really significant impact and make a big difference to the local election results. Mm. Um, I think there are people who are maybe not part of the two national parties or not part of the Labour Party at least who are got their, everything crossed that will be later on in the year because then they can portray the local elections as as just local elections, just about who's running the council, um, just about who's doing best for the local community. I think if the local elections and the general elections happen on the same day, which seems quite unlikely now, but if that were to be the case, I think obviously national politics would get massively drawn into the local mm. election campaign and more than likely Labour would do a lot better than they might otherwise if the two elections are taken apart. Yeah, no, I think mm, it's a fascinating. It, it, it's something we, we've we've mused on, and I think, you know, I, I think the two main parties would would perhaps benefit much more strongly for the two being linked. Whereas, obviously, if we look at last year's elections, it was it was the the Lib Dems and the and the uh, the Portsmouth Independents as well as yourself who probably had the uh, the better of the night. So um, we will see how it all unfolds. So Simon, it depends on. I guess our working assumption is that we'll find out when we find out, but <laughs> that's, what that's what we're planning for. <laughs> we're planning for whenever someone wakes up and says, ah, today's a good day to go. Um, so, okay. So uh, <laughs> where did we get to? Okay. So the, uh, the, the clean air zone. So, um, so the clean air zone covers a, a large part of the of the ward, as, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Um, you've got the M two seven five, one of the only three um, entrances into the city, uh, coming uh, coming in through. Um, is the clean air zone a good thing for residents, or, and has it made a difference? And, I, and I, if I can get that first to Cal, if that's all right. Yeah, thanks, Simon. I've been supportive of the clean air zone. Um, in fact, I've argued that it probably hasn't gone far enough. I think it has had an impact. Clearly, that there has um, in, been a deterrent effect for those older commercial vehicles, such as the big HGVs. Um, there, there wasn't, I think, a massive amount of them, but there was a, a small number of older vehicles which would have been liable for the clean air zone charges um, who have been caught up in this. And the organizations that own those vehicles have now got a reasonable incentive to upgrade their vehicles to something that's more efficient in order to avoid the charge which clearly is good um 
my concerns at the time were that it wasn't expansive enough. Um, I think when you do a smaller area, particularly in somewhere like Portsmouth, you're inevitably going to have displacement effects. That means that someone who might own a vehicle or is driving a vehicle and, and responsible for that charge, um, if they know they can't go in through the bottom of um, the M27, M275, then they probably may well be um, kind of encouraged to go down Eastern Roads or come down London Roads um, in Kingston Road, Fratton Road, etc. The initial proposals for the, the smaller scheme that we've currently got actually did, for that reason, I think, include Fratton Road and Kingston Roads, which is one of the main kind of road corridors through the centre of the city. And actually, probably the main road corridor that most people live around. So clearly, not that many people live directly um, on the Eastern Road, although some do, similarly with the M275. Um, lots and lots of people do live directly on Fratton Road and Kingston Road and travel up and down it and across it um, every day. So I thought it was really important that that should be included. Um, in the end, the Lib Dems, unfortunately, did exempt um, Fratton Road and Kingston Road from the clean air zone after being lobbied to do so by businesses who were concerned about the impacts on, on their uh, financials. Um, so I think it could have gone further. I think it's been a good thing. It's probably made a marginally positive impact, um, but I think it could go a lot further. And also, just to also mention, because lots of people were concerned and even to this day are concerned about clean air zones and the impacts it may have on them and their families, the type of clean air zone that's been implemented in Portsmouth applies only to commercial vehicles. Um, so it's not including your, your average family car. It's not even, even including your kind of small white van that a self-employed Sparky or Carpenter, et cetera, um, might um, use on a daily basis. It is primarily the large commercial vehicles such as HG, HGVs, um, which are typically owned by big national companies who I'm sure can either afford the charge or hopefully will not want to pay the charge and put their hands in their pocket to upgrade their vehicles and stop polluting our air so much. Okay, thank you. Um, Yinka, your, your thoughts on the, on the clean air zone, good or bad thing for the for the residents? Um, I'm just going to add one or two things with what Kai just said. Well, I've noticed a reduction in the traffic uh, volume and the emission level in the world, to be honest. And uh, recently, we tried to uh, like create awareness by going to schools and encourage people cycle to school, the children cycle to school, walk, walking instead of a parent, and it's just part of all this uh, 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 clean air zone, just to make sure the pollution by with FECO is uh, is is reduced. So I can I can just say. I think I can see the little changes, but we are not there yet. And then we are still waiting for the data because no, I think we, I don't, I can't remember again, but we are waiting to see because we can only see through the data if it has been reduced or not, but it has not, we are, we are not yet, I'm not yet know the data yet, but it has been reduced greatly. I must admit, I, I thought some was due out in November, but I hadn't I hadn't seen any. So it's it, no. it's quite interesting that there hasn't been any um, mm. a, a, any data yet. It's been it's been in place a a while now. So you'd you'd have thought there'd be something there to um, to be able to demonstrate either it has or it hasn't made the difference that the that it was intended. Mm. Um, 
Okay, but it's um, so it's, it's it, in that way what you've described. It's kind of and forgive the pun. It's it's been the catalyst for changing some behaviours around other uh, other uh, transport decisions that that will also help um, help uh, with traffic congestion and help with with pollution and and health and well being actually with the, within the ward. Is that it, it, that sounds yeah. like a a, a, mm -hmm. a good opportunity? Mm. Okay, it's great. Thank you. So if we look at Charles Dickens Ward, it's got a it's got a lot of um, fantastic sort of reminders of Portsmouth's past, mm. um, you know, in the dockyard and, and surrounding it. I guess what question, what what part do you think the Charles Dickens Ward will play in Portsmouth's future? And if I can ask that first to Yinka. Um, I know Charles Dickens is, a, is, is an historic and cultural uh, ward with many landmarks. You know, monuments, uh, monu monu <laughs> sorry, monuments and uh, buildings and that reflect the rich and diverse heritage of the city. But in, with uh, what I can actually say that is, I think the Chazikin is a word that preserve the past, shape the uh, uh, um the present, and inspire the future of. The that is all what I can say about that no. questions no that that's perfect so so cal what what do you see is the what what part is the charles dickens awards going to play in the future of portsmouth what what would it look like in in a few years time so one thing in particular that i think is gonna um be massive within the city but particularly within charles dickens ward is the kind of decarbonisation works that are going to be necessary in order for us as a country, us as a civilization, to meet the net zero challenge. Um, as I mentioned earlier, something like 70% of people within Charles Dickens Ward live within social housing. Typically, those are within, or if not almost exclusively, within blocks of flats, um, mostly low to mid-rise, but also some high-rise blocks as well. Uh, they were typically built in the 50s, 60s mm. and 70s. Um, clearly now ageing, still providing kind of decent accommodation for lots of people, but definitely ageing in terms of their energy efficiency and definitely in need of massive upgrades and renewal in terms of um, those kind of decarbonisation works. So I think there's a massive opportunity there. It's more than an opportunity, actually. It's a necessity for probably billions of pounds worth of, of work to be done. And what I'd like to see in terms of turning that into, into an opportunity is ensuring that local people benefit from that so clearly people will benefit from their homes being better insulated but the questions that I have been asking um, already and want to continue asking is who's going to be doing this work um, where are the, the skilled apprenticeships going to be there's lots of um, people um, within our area lots of young people who are stuck in kind of dead ends low paid jobs um, we could create hundreds of, of really kind of skilled apprenticeships and opportunities, setting people up for life um, in the types of work that's going to be needed to kind of improve their homes. Um, so I think there's a really big opportunity there in terms of decarbonisation of the social housing stock across the ward. I also think clearly got, there's hopefully going to be a lot of money going into the city centre in terms of the regeneration um, that's centred around the former Tricorn site. I know it's a uh, a kind of topic that lots of people roll their eyes at because there have been various proposed regeneration mm. schemes that have, have never really taken off. Um, and I'll certainly share that frustration. 
hopefully we do seem to now be taking some steps towards that. I know that the, the first phase of the council's plan um, has been granted planning permission. So hopefully that will progress. And again, I think what I'd like to see is local residents really being at the heart of that. I think it's important that we're not just um, placing a new community kind of isolated from the rest of the ward, plopping it into the middle of the city centre. It needs to be something that is kind of genuinely linked to the existing communities and also genuinely to the benefit of those communities. Um, so again, that's something I've been pushing for and will continue to, um, to do so and keep a close eye on. Brilliant. Thank you, Cal. Simon. Okay, so um, our um, our next question, and I'll and I'll, um, and I'll put this one first to, to Cal. So, what what change or achievement are you, are you most proud of in, in your time as councillor? Obviously, um, you've um, you've been a councillor um, longer longer than, than Yinka, but um, but still, um, what, what's your what's your best achievement? So a key priority for me uh, and something that I'd like to think we've done a reasonable amount of work on and made some progress around is, is trying to empower kind of people and community groups within the area to, to play more of a role in how their area is governed. Um, so, yeah, it's great that people have chosen us to be their ward councillors, but I don't think it's then just for us to go away and speak on behalf of people or say this is what the community really needs or wants. Um, so the way in which I've tried to put that into practice is, is all about kind of empowering people to be actively involved in these various projects or in, in the um, various ways in which their area may be changing or developing. So for me, that's always about pushing kind of genuine engagement in projects. Um, so when I go to briefings, meetings, when I'm being talked about um, to about new projects, the, the first question or definitely first um, or second is what involvement have we got with local residents around this? Um, and sometimes it may be, oh, well, we've, we have done some consultation. So great, that's better than no consultation. But for me, a survey um, or a focus group is quite different to actually actively involving people within those projects. Why? So I will always say, why can't we have residents on the governance boards for this project? Why we can't we have residents um, on the kind of board of directors for these new community groups we're setting up? Um, and in a similar vein, something that we always try to push is encouraging people to set up residence groups and residence associations. Um, and we try mm. to play kind of role as facilitators within that. So if we, if someone comes to us and say, look, there's real problems with our block. Um, we've got X, Y, and Z going on. No one's listening to us. Quite often we'll go speak to a neighbor and, and they'll say the same thing. And their neighbor will also say the same thing, but they've been trying to deal with it as individuals. So they've, spoken to the housing office or they've made complaints and they've perhaps not got where they wanted to um so our suggestion is always well why, why don't we bring you together with your neighbors who have got the same concerns to set up some kind of collective organization um, a resident association mm -hmm. or something of that type because together you've mm -hmm. got a much stronger voice and together we can support yes. you to to lobby the council yeah. or whatever authority it is to get the resources um, and the focus needed mm -hmm to deal with the issue. So yeah, I guess in, in general, the point I'm making is about, for me, it's very much about empowering um, people to come together, take control of their own lives and influence those outcomes and not just rely on elected representatives or council officers or whoever it may be, um, but actually kind of take up that mantle and do part of the work themselves. And if I can ask a cheeky follow on, do, do you think that the absence of that is 
is kind of behind the the ward having the having the lowest voter turnout in in elections or, or do you think it's other things i think it plays a role definitely i mean i know for a fact because we get um the data from who is voted clearly not who they voted for but we can see whether someone's voted or not in the last election and i know from reviewing that that yeah the blocks that have got a strong community focus that have got a regular residence meeting or a regular coffee morning that more often than not we're able to engage with in various ways they tend to have higher voter turnouts and higher engagement within those elections because they're they are naturally coming together anyway to discuss the issues in their area so I guess it's um, yeah a kind of natural progression for them if there's an election coming up to have those conversations and have a bit more engagement within the process. Okay, lovely. Thank you. Um, Yinka, what, what, what are you most uh, proud of in your time as, as councillor? Um, thank you. Anyway, one of the uh, things Kai just mentioned is about um, forming resident association with the residents. Because we believe a, a tree a tree cannot make a forest. So sometimes we just advise them, it's good. If you are going through the same problem, then it's good to come together. And then if you speak with one voice, things will get done than an individual penetrating. So we are able to form a resident association whereby we attend the meeting, resident, we call it resident association meeting. So we we we, we do that with them and then facilitate the meeting and then if there's any issue concern that they want us to pass on to the council we do that so that is one of the greatest achievement because i remember each time we go on the door knocking especially if it's high-rise building and they have the same issue the same problem it was okay why can't we just have a, 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 a meeting association meeting like park we normally go for the, uh, to uh, policy for the meeting. So we make sure we do all that. And then one thing again is when I'm, I, I, I made myself available to residents and I put smile on their face when I'm able to resolve their issues and concerns and their problem, that's that's one of the achievements. And I remember I can give one example. I have one or two residents that came to me. They pay uh, um, deposit to letting agents. And the letting agents refused to give them their money back, even though they didn't give them ours. So, but because I stepped in, I emailed them. I'm like, okay, what is the issue? If you refuse to give these people housing and it's not the fault is not theirs, I think by law you need to uh, return their money back to them. And two occasions like that, I've helped two residents in getting their money back from from letting agent. Out of that, that's another. An, an achievement of so um being able to um accessible to the resident make myself available to the resident and all that i think it is an achievement thank you wonderful thank you thank you very much so last question just quickly to to round things off so uh, if if money and process was no object what's the one thing you would change about the way that the council is run and can I pass that first to Yinka? Oh yes, the one thing I will, uh, I would, I want, I would change about the council about the how the council works is to make it more transparent and accountable. And I think the council should be more open and honest with the public about its decision, actions, and performance. 
So you should also be more responsive and responsible to the feedback, suggestions, and complaints from the public. So that is, and apart from that, I, I don't know if you're thinking, will it not be better if you if you run the election once in four years instead of every year? Mm. If they can change that, because I think it's just a waste of time, waste of money, and then we have what we call election period in March. That everything will stand still. That means they are they are running the council at a loss in that period. So why not change it to once in four years? I know there will be by election and we reduce the uh, or the um, money spending and all that. So that is uh, my 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 suggestion or what I would like to change anyway. That's brilliant. Thank you, Yinka. So Cal, yourself. Is there one thing that you'd, uh, you'd, well, there's probably more than one thing, but what would be the, uh, if you were given that magic wand, what's the what's the first thing that would change on your list? Yeah, so in terms of how the council runs and its processes, um, you can stole my one, actually. I wanted to talk about, but I will make the point anyway, because I've got a few additional kind of issues to raise. Um, moving to all out elections. Um, as people know at the moment, we have local elections three out of every four years, um, kind of with one year off and then back into the cycle where a third of councillors are up for election at any one time. I think moving to all out elections every four years, which the council does have the power to do, and that's how some other local authorities choose to run their um, election processes, I think has got a couple of kind of key benefits. And Probably the most important for me is that I think it would encourage longer term strategic thinking and policy making. At the moment, um, we're almost constantly in this cycle of May elections and administration gets in. They maybe spend three months optimistically implementing their policy priorities. And then the next nine months are fighting the next election and so mm -hmm. on and so on. Um, but when we look at some of the issues that we're facing, I mean, I'll take the one I talked about earlier, the climate crisis, meeting the net, the net zero challenge. The local authority and all of us as a city and a country and a, a population around the world are going to have to realistically make massive changes to the way we live and the way we organise our lives. Um, and to do that, we need long term strategic thinking. We don't need to be obsessed with elections coming up every single year. We need to be able to give people the opportunity to get into power and then have a period of time of at least a couple of years where they can start to make some of these changes, let them bed in. Um, some of these changes might be controversial in the short run mm. and in fact probably will be but i i do think they are necessary and probably will work out for the best in the longer term so we need to allow them time to, to bed in allow people time to adjust to the changes that are being made or that hopefully they're involved in in making to their lives um so for me that's a real key reason i think there's a couple of other ones as well that i would mention um I think people do suffer from a little bit of, of voter fatigue in terms of having local elections every year. Um, clearly, we go and knock on people's doors every year. And uh, quite often there is that conversation as, why, why are you back? We had this conversation a few months ago. Oh, well, there's local elections again. Oh, what? Yeah. So you're up for election? No, I'm not up for election. It's one of the other councillors. And it's, it's confusing, I think. I don't think people really understand how the process works. I think it would be much more straightforward and, and give people the opportunity to engage with it in a much more meaningful way if it was 
like a general election every four years or so, um, mm. because then they know, look, we had an election a few years ago. Do I think that things have changed for the better in my area? Have my local representatives been engaging? Have they done stuff for the community? We've given them a bit of time. Now we can make um, and have that judgment on whether we want to vote them back in or not. And the last point I would mention um, might be being a bit optimistic here. So let me know if you think this is ridiculously naive. <laughs> but I would hope that having local elections every four years might lead to a little bit less tribalism on the council. I think, again, one of the issues at the moment is that um, disincentivizes councillors and political parties from working together on important local issues is that they know they're going to be fighting them for votes in a couple of months' time. If it was a four-year period, then maybe for the first one or two years at least, there might be opportunities for a little bit of cooperation where people aren't kind of obsessed with how that's going to look at the ballot box in a few months' time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, a, a few... A few um, reasons why uh, I think all out elections would be good. It's interesting that Yink has also mentioned it because I do think uh, it is something that could help. It might seem a little bit technocratic to some people, um, but yeah, based on my experience, I think it would be a positive change. Yeah, and in our experience, Cal, yeah, sorry, Yinka, carry on. Yes, I was just saying it's it's fairly stressful, to be honest, running uh, uh, election, campaigning and everything. It, it can be very, very, very stressful for or candidates, for councillors, because you can't leave your your colleague when they are when they are running their campaign. You need to join them doing that together. So it can be very, very stressful. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm sure sometimes come in those February, March full council meetings, we do see motions that we think might perhaps be for the benefits of leaflets to be written in April. But that might be us being cynical. So really? Yinka Cal, thank you very much no. for your time. <laughs> Um, that's been absolutely excellent. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. Um, and our guests have been Councillor Cal Corkery and Councillor Yinka Adenaran. Thank you both. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers, Thank you so much for, for inviting us. And I will hope to join you again very soon. We'd love to. We'd love to have you back. It, uh, both of you've been fantastic. So thank, thank you, thank you very much. Um, and yeah. our regular listeners can um, also join us at our usual time next Sunday, um, unless something else goes wrong. Um, um, but either way, you can um, like, follow, subscribe um, wherever you um, wherever you um, consuming our content, um, either on Facebook, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, please, um, please do follow along. I've been Simon Sansbury, and we'll see you next week. Let's. 627. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, Feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa, play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa, the latest episode. stop. See? It's easy.